Good evening. I'm Carrie Brower, the Chief Curator and Director of Art and Programs here at the Hirshhorn, and I want to welcome you all to the opening festivities for the Anselm Kiefer Heaven and Earth Exhibition, uh, a show which we're uh, absolutely proud to have here, and it's been on the schedule, it's been a long time coming, and, and I'm really thrilled it's, it's finally here and we've gotten it installed, and I hope you've all had a chance to take in um, some of the exhibition by this point. Um, it's an exhibition which really takes a look at the, um, the work of Anselm Kiefer, um, and it's the first major exhibition, really, of Kiefer's work in almost uh, two decades. Uh, and I think um, it's a show which is uh, pretty spectacular in the way that it manages to take a great deal of work uh, and focus in on a certain theme uh, of Kiefer's, and that is his interest in, in heaven and earth, uh, in, in the cosmos, uh, but also in things that are tragically all too real also um, as well. And to bring that together and use that as a theme very brilliantly uh, by the curator who we have here tonight, uh, Michael Opping, uh, who's pulled this together and made uh, such a beautiful um, exhibition out of it. Um, and I think that, um, in a way, um, the Kiefer show actually presents a kind of idea of what the Hirshhorn tries to do. Because what we try to do here at the Hirshhorn is to bring international artists, uh, important artists, uh, into the program here at the Hirshhorn. And certainly Anselm Kiefer is one of the most important painters um, of our time. Um, it's a show which also, you know, goes together with the smaller shows we do, like Jim Lambie, which is up in the... Um, uh, up in the lobby right now, which is a show of a Scottish artist uh, who has made the uh, lobby quite colorful, uh, and I'm sure you noticed it uh, on your way in. I just wanted to um, say thank you also uh, tonight, uh, besides to Michael, who's here to talk to us tonight, I wanted to say thank you to Valerie Fletcher, who had her own great dialogue with Anselm Kiefer during the course of putting this exhibition together. Um, Anselm, as some of you may know, lived in Germany at first, but uh, moved to France, and, and Valerie flew over to France to uh, elicit a few more paintings out of Anselm that um, came to the show here. So we want to thank uh, Valerie uh, as well. Um, it, of course, would not be possible to do these kinds of exhibitions uh, without uh, the financial support of, of a number of people. And we wanted to thank some of those uh, tonight, the Helenia Trust, which is in memory of the museum's founder, uh, Joseph Hershorn, uh, was um, uh, one of the sponsors of this exhibition tonight, along with the friends of Jim and Barbara Demetrian Endowment Fund. And uh, I might say that Jim Demetrian is here with us tonight, and I'm very happy to see him in the front row. And I have to say that this exhibition was put on the schedule by Jim uh, a couple years ago, at, at least. And um, uh, Jim, thank you for putting it on because we're all um, so pleased to see it here now. Um, I also want to thank our Board of Trustees who've helped very genuous, uh, generously with this exhibition, and also a friend of ours and a donor, uh, Robert uh, Mnuchin. Um, most of all, uh, I need to thank a, a corporation who helped sponsor this exhibition for its entire tour, and that is uh, UBS. Uh, and UBS has a kind of cornerstone uh, of its philosophy, the idea that art is actually inspiring and that it should be brought uh, to everyone. And uh, they're in the business, uh, not only for business, but also in the business of bringing art uh, to the public. So we want to thank uh, the people uh, at UBS. Um, before I introduce formally Michael tonight, I just wanted to mention a couple of other um, upcoming programs. Um, for the next four uh, Thursdays, we're going to be featuring Art Night, which many of you have come to over the years in the summer. And um, hopefully it'll be cooler out on the plaza than it is in here right at the moment. It's feeling a little warm in here to me tonight. Uh, but we'll have jazz on the plaza from um, around 5.30 to, to 8.30. And we have wonderful jazz artists coming for that this summer. So I do hope you can come to that. Uh, in addition, on Friday, uh, June 14th, uh, Washington, D.C.-based uh, artist uh, Maggie Michael uh, will be here to examine Kiefer's use of materials uh, in a lunchtime talk, and that will be at 12.30, so it'll basically be one painter uh, on another painter, and I hope you can join us uh, for that as well. 
Um, I'd like to introduce Michael now. I'm really pleased that he is able to be here with us tonight. Uh, he was the curator of this um, exhibition, which originally opened in Fort Worth and uh, then traveled to Montreal and is now here at the Hirshhorn. And we'll be moving on after this to the San Francisco uh, Museum of Modern Art. Um, Michael is the uh, chief curator um, at uh, the Modern Art Museum in Fort Worth, and I think he's been there since about 1993. And before that, when I first uh, heard about him and his great exhibitions, he was the chief curator at the Albright Knox. Um, there he did an exhibition which still stands, for me anyway, as one of the great shows about abstract expressionism. It was called Abstract Expressionism, The Critical Developments, which he did in uh, 1987, uh, a, a thorough survey uh, of that uh, important movement. Um, a couple of years ago, when they opened this fabulous new building um, in Fort Worth, uh, he opened it with a major retrospective of Philip Guston, uh, another fantastic exhibition, uh, probably the most in-depth survey of that artist's work that um, has ever happened, to really, just to mention, two fabulous shows that, that Michael has done. Uh, besides his major exhibitions, he's been the commissioner for the American Pavilion at the 1990 Venice Biennale, which was awarded the Best Pavilion Prize uh, with the installation of the work of uh, Jenny Holzer, who happened to be here earlier today, by the way. And um, he served on a selection um, of curators uh, who actually uh, uh, curated the 2000 Whitney uh, Biennial uh, presentation. And his essays have been published in all kinds of magazines, including Art Forum, Art News, and Art in America. Um, but I also have to say, in closing, uh, before I introduce him uh, formally, that um, I have to admit that uh, Michael and I share a very dark secret. Uh, and that is that um, both of us uh, grew up in what is now known through television as the OC. I'm sorry to reveal that, Michael, but uh, please join me in welcoming Michael Opping. Thank you, Carrie, very much. We're the only two uh, Democrats to come out of... Uh, Orange County, actually, to this day. Um, the slide that you see uh, on the screen here right now is a still from uh, Vim Vender's 1987 film, Wings of Desire. And the plot of that film, basically, is that um, two angels are sent to Earth simply as witnesses. And they're frustrated because prior to this, prior to this assignment by God, they had been allowed to intermingle with people on earth, to be guardian angels, as it were. But God was displeased with the way things were going on earth. And he banished, and the angels protested, and he banished them to earth as witnesses. But Vender's own description of the film actually written after the film was released in Germany, is a little more poignant. According to Venders, when God, endlessly disappointed, finally prepared to turn his back on the world forever, it happened that some of his angels disagreed with him and took the side of man, saying he deserved to be given another chance. Angry at being crossed, God banished them to what was then the most terrible place on earth, Berlin. And then he turned away. All this happened at the time that we today call the end of World War II. I mentioned Vendor's film and Vim Vendor's because Vendor's is essentially the same generation as Anselm Kiefer. And in many ways in Germany, this is a lost generation. This is a generation, let me see, that didn't see swastikas floating down the avenues of Berlin. Rather, what they saw was a burned-up landscape, the devastation of World War II. What they inherited was a memory, but an unspoken memory. When Kiefer once told me that in middle school, for the, the, when he was studying history, the period from 1930 to 1945 they devoted two days to one of the most devastating periods in modern history. So there was definitely a sense of 
we must forget and we must move on. And Germany was helped by America in moving on. And it came in the form of money through the Marshall Plan. And the Marshall Plan, uh, following World War II, the United States pumped $20 billion into the German economy, actually into the European economy. Much of it, however, went to Germany to rebuild Europe after World War II. And the idea was, let's look forward, not look back. And the Germans were incredibly resilient. And Kiefer's parents and Vendor's parents were all about thinking things are going well. You know, we can rebuild our economy, we can rebuild our identity. But Kiefer and Vendor's generation still had a gap. It's kind of a slip space between what had happened and where we're going. And it left a sense of doubt that probably those of us in America today can't quite understand. And it took me many years of working with Kiefer to understand exactly uh, why he makes the work he does, why the work is as dark as it is, not so much dark but gray, why it's an intermediate color. It's never quite bright. It's never completely dark. It's a kind of a grayness. And as uh, as Kiefer put it to me once, after the war, the primary goal was to forget which left my generation with an immense hole. To not talk about it made those events seem even more horrific, especially at a time when everyone wanted to buy new cars and toasters. So it came as quite a shock in 1969 when the German economy was really pumping along and working well, when a young 24-year-old artist named Anselm Kiefer had himself photographed on the banks of the Rhine in a World War II German uniform. This was not something Germany wanted to look at or wanted to hear about. Now, there were two interpretations of these photographs that Kiefer made. One was the Germans said, this is unbelievable, this is, uh, this is a, a fascist statement. But the art world took it as a form of conceptual art. And 1969 was a time when the movement of conceptual art was very important. And the idea was that art should be about ideas, not about objects. And conceptual art was very diaristic, and it was very narrative. And the very same year that Kiefer had this photograph taken, Vito Acconci in the United States did a piece called Following Peace. And basically what he did was he picked random people in New York and he followed them all over the city until they went home. And he took photographs and notes of what they did. And Akanchi once said, I saw it as my way of making a group portrait of my city, New York. Well, Kiefer's occupation series was also a group portrait, but it cut a lot deeper particularly when, along the banks of the Rhine, in the German uniform, he performed the Sieg Heil. And this was extremely inflammatory. But it it came from a sense of trying to get people to talk about it again, to think about it, to at least... It came from a generation that wanted to deal with it, even if they didn't know how they were going to deal with it. And you would say, how could someone decide to do something like that other than through shock value? Is this just a young artist who's just trying to shock people? Actually, there are precedents for this. And in America, and we're still on the year 1969. Vito Acconci's piece was 1969. First Occupation's photographs were 1969. And this painting by Philip Guston is from 1969. Now, Guston, who had grown up in Los Angeles loathed the Ku Klux Klan. And he had seen Ku Klux Klan um, raids in, in L.A., um, and there was a huge group of Ku Klux Klan members in Los Angeles at the time Gustin was growing up with Jackson Pollock in Los Angeles. And this is a self-portrait, basically. Gustin is underneath the hood, smoking his cigarette, painting a self-portrait of another person under a hood. 
And Gustin's explanation, and Gustin was also lambasted, I might add. This was a very successful abstract expressionist who had decided during the time of the Vietnam War that things were going on that he had to address. Um, and he addressed them in his paintings. And he said, my attempt was really not to illustrate, to do pictures of the Ku Klux Klan. The idea of evil fascinated me, and rather like Isaac Babel, who had joined the murdering Cossacks, lived with them, and written stories about them, I almost tried to imagine that I was living with the Klan. What would it be like to be evil, to plan and to plot? It was a way for Gustin to work through the politics that he was seeing around him through his paintings. Kiefer did essentially the same things. He pretended to be a Nazi soldier, and he photographed himself in various landscapes, and he photographed himself in his studio. This is a photograph of Kiefer in his studio, and you might notice the one on the upper right, your upper right, um, and it looks like he's all-powerful. He's walking on water. It's actually a piece of glass placed over a can. But he's pretending to be the all-powerful soldier. But then Kiefer complicates the Occupation series. And, and I might remind you that the title of this series is Occupations. And Occupations is about Germans occupying Europe, Germans hoping to occupy the world. But it was also a reverse. It's about this memory of German history occupying Kiefer's generation, being completely preoccupied with what had happened. And Kiefer complicates this, though, when he does a Sieg Heil at the edge of the sea. And this is maybe a time to mention that Kiefer's father was a teacher, and one of his specialties was art history. And so Kiefer was very aware, certainly of German art history, if not a lot of European art history and some American art history. So uh, this Caspar David Friedrich painting on the right from 1818 depicts a man standing before the sea, imagining the universe, imagining the infinite. What, where is my place in the world? And Kiefer stands with his German uniform doing the Sieg Heil, perhaps imagining it but trying to occupy it, pretending to be a soldier who could occupy this universe, knowing full well that he can't. I mean, these are ironic photographs. I mean, you can only look at them as irony. But to really understand, I think, Kiefer's work in a deeper way, we need to go back even before the occupation series of 1969-1971-72 and go back to the fact that Kiefer did not begin his idea of a career as an artist. He studied law. And his idea was to become a lawyer. And he has said to me many times, you know, Michael, I didn't, I didn't want to be a lawyer simply to do lawsuits. You know, I was interested in the spiritual side of law, and um, which is a little hard for me to understand knowing a few lawyers that I know, but that, you know, this was in the late 60s, perhaps, and things were different. Um, when he was studying law, Kiefer gravitated to very complex figures, and one of the people he gravitated towards was a man named Carl Schmidt. And he was a very controversial German theological and legal intellectual. And the idea was that through law and spirituality, church and state could be, could be combined to make something good. And he wrote two books. One was two very important books. One was called Political Theology, which he wrote in 1922. And one was called... The Spiritual Historical Situation of Today's Parliament in 1923. And according to Schmidt, and I'm going to quote him here, leadership is common to both the church and the state. These two entities tread a thin line. History has shown this. These two entities must learn from each other without corruption of either. 
A strong leader is necessary for both. This is where Kiefer was very interested in the idea of a strong leader is necessary for both. And Schmidt, as it turns out, got a stronger leader than he'd bargained for. Schmidt was um, associated with the Nazi party. He was embraced by Hitler because Hitler could use him to bring theology into his political agenda. I mean, as Kiefer often likes to remind me, you know, Michael, Hitler said a lot of prayers in his speeches. And I have to say, the title of the show is, is, Church in, uh, is um, Heaven and Earth. The original title I thought of making, which was ludicrous, and Anselm was right, I, it, it was not a good thing to do, but I thought the title of the show could be Church and State. Uh, and I was probably influenced by what is going on in the world today. And Kiefer said, no, we can't. This is too specific, too specific. It's much bigger than that. And I think Kiefer's work is much bigger than that. So Kiefer is studying law in the late 60s. There are a lot of protests going on in Europe. There are a lot of protests going on in America. And as Kiefer liked to say to me, you know, uh, Michael, I wasn't trying to get into a law firm. It wasn't about that, you know. It, it was really about trying to find ourselves. And during all of this commotion, uh, political commotion, uh, it was a period, you know, they call the late 60s the, the death of God period. And Kiefer wanted to find a way of sort of bringing spirituality without sentimentality and without following like a lamb into the debate, an intellectual discussion of spirituality. And he couldn't really do it in law school. And so he took some time off and he found a very interesting place to go. Um, He wrote uh, the monks at La Tourette, it's a monastery designed in 1959 by Le Corbusier. It's a very famous monastery, very beautiful, modernist building. And Kiefer was allowed to come for three weeks and spend time in a cell by himself at La Tourette. They had a fantastic library. It's an unbelievable concrete building. It's, and it's in this building that I think Kiefer first realized that modern art could actually have both a political as well as a spiritual aspect. And it's through these huge concrete walls. And I'm stressing this concrete for what I'm going to talk about at the end of the lecture. Because it was very important to Kiefer. And these stairs up to the library at La Tourette were very important to Kiefer. It took me a long time to get this slide, let me tell you. They, it's now a tourist attraction. It, when Kiefer went there, you could go and stay in a cell. Now, because of uh, Le Corbusier's fame and um, the French government, it, it, it's hard to get back into some of these areas. But these stairs that lead up to this idea of an intellectual spirituality. And those of you who know the Dominicans know that they are an intellectual sect. They are, you know, they're, they're very much about books and reading and understanding God through knowledge, but all knowledge, not just the New Testament or just the Old Testament. So after his visit to La Tourette, Kiefer decided to become an artist. And he went to a Freiburg Art Academy. And the earliest work in this exhibition is a simple, three simple little white books. They're like children's white books that you would practice writing in, practice your uh, cursive writing in. And they're called The Heavens. And so he's tackling this huge subject, The Heavens. I mean, how can you possibly tackle a subject so large, so nebulous. But he does it with a bit of irony and a bit of humor. And so he might have a, a photograph of some clouds. And it will say, um, heaven is seen from the east side of a park in Berlin. 
But then, this would be heaven from seen, the, seen from the side of a mountain in Frankfurt. I don't know where there are any mountains in Frankfurt, but maybe that's part of the irony. The frontispiece to the book, however, is a photograph of a very famous installation uh, by the German architect Albert Speer. Speer is famous for being known as Hitler's architect. And Speer designed many of the buildings for Hitler. And he, he was sort of the designer, Hitler's visual designer. And what it is, is it's a series of Klieg lights. You know, Klieg lights like in Hollywood. And what Speer did was he pointed them directly up to heaven into the sky. So these Klieg lights that were actually used to, uh, to spot enemy bombers were shot directly to heaven to make this wall of light. So there's something here that where Kiefer is saying, you know, Speer had a real problem, just like Schmidt, a very complex figure, someone who had brilliant ideas but was somehow sucked in to the Nazi party. But Kiefer didn't want to to say that you know everything he did was bad. And this is part of the, the interesting impurities of Kiefer's work. And then you'll see a little red square. And it will say in German, the heavens above a burning German city seen from the cockpit of an English bomber. So you're in the cockpit, you're a jet fighter. There's later in one of the other books, it says, heaven is seen from the wings of a Luftwaffe fighter jet. So you are suspended. Imagine you're in an airplane, bombing the earth, looking up at the sky. And there is, this is this sense of very dynamic impurity that is going on that Kiefer is identifying in this book. And then in 1970, he does a watercolor in which you see the cockpit has become a child's snow globe. You know the little globes that you buy and you turn it upside down with snow in them? This is a little snow globe with this very elegant blue over it. It's a very intimate uh, watercolor. But inside the globe, you see this little figure. He's wearing a green uniform. Kiefer swears it's not a uniform, but look at it. It's a, and, and, and he swears that he's not doing the Sieg Heil, but look at it. Uh, Kiefer has a whole other story, that, 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 and I believe that it's true, that, that it, was really, um, um, it, it was really inspired by uh, a, a book that he'd read by Robert Musley, it's a pre-World I novel called The Man Without Qualities. And it, was, it, it dealt with a society in which there were no leaders. There were only bureaucrats. There were only people who followed. And, but the title of the work is called uh, every, every Person Stands Under Their Own Dome of Heaven, which could also be a title for this show, in a way. So... Looking for a leader, at this time, Kiefer had heard about Joseph Beuys, a very famous artist in Germany who, ironically, was a Luftwaffe pilot. And he was, he was in the German military, and when he came out of the service, he became an artist. And there's a lot of myth around Joseph Beuys, which I'm not going to go into, some of it true, some of it not true, but the point was Joseph Beuys had experienced the war. I mean, he, he's someone who, who, who could say to Kiefer and who said to a number of interviewers in an ironic way, um, what is the famous quote? Um, we all went to church and we all went to Hitler Youth. And, but Boys was like a shaman. He was more of a performer. He made sculptures, but he was quite a performer. And all of his performances involved very esoteric symbols, which Kiefer was fascinated by. But it should also be acknowledged that prior to Kiefer's occupation series, two decades prior to Kiefer's occupation series, Boys did a piece called Auschwitz in 1953. And it consisted of a series of burnt sausages 
and charred relics. And it was so inflammatory and so ridiculous in 1953 that it almost got unnoticed. Even those people who know Boyce's work sometimes forget that he did this piece. And I want to quote Boyce after he had done this piece, because it's very important, I think, to understanding Kiefer's work, particularly when I am mingling, as Kiefer does, politics with metaphysics. I do not feel that these works were made to represent catastrophe, although the experience of catastrophe has certainly contributed to my awareness. But my interest was not in illustrating it, even when I used the title of a concentration camp. This was not a description of the events in the camp, but of the content and meaning of the catastrophe. That must be the starting point. He'll like, that is the homeo, he'll like with like, that is the homeopathic healing process. He'll like with like. So with Kiefer's work, I think you have to keep this advice in mind. And Kiefer, Boys was very radical as a teacher, for a number of reasons. His art was radical, but he was also radical as a teacher. He taught at the Dusseldorf Art Academy, and he allowed anyone to come to his classes. It didn't matter if you were enrolled. And the administration tried to stop him, and he would just have classes outside the university, and he would, he would, he would give people grades, and it didn't matter who you were. And so Kiefer didn't enroll in Dusseldorf Art Academy. He simply went to boys and said... I'm doing this stuff. Um, I'd like you to look at it. And boys looked at it and said, this is interesting. I understand this. We're, you know, we're on the same wavelength. And boys was very, very important to Kiefer in terms of giving him uh, permission to do what he was doing. Uh, and boys had said to him, you know, but you have to start from the beginning. Start from your very beginning. You know, start from scratch. You can't, don't look at the art of our time. Don't look at Vito Acconci. Don't look, just start from scratch. So one of Kiefer's earliest paintings from 1971, it's called Man in the Forest. And he's literally starting from scratch. It's Kiefer standing in a nightgown in the forest with this burning branch. And as Kiefer has said to me many times, you know, Michael, our entire history began in the forest. All of our stories begin in the forest. This is where I had to begin. The, all of the fairy tales, German fairy tales, begin in the forest. The Battle of Teutonborg, where the Germans defeated the Romans, took place in the forest. So Kiefer said, I had to begin in the forest. And he has this burning branch, and it's, it's as though he's trying to light the way through the forest with this burning branch. But this same burning branch could burn the forest down. And when you look at Kiefer's work, whatever you see, always think of the opposite at the same time. Because that's the nature of his oscillating symbolism. He then makes a series of works in 1973 in which you notice that Kiefer is missing now. In his place is a snake. And there is still a forest with these large pine trees. Kiefer, by the way, in German means pine tree. Um, uh, and, but there's a clearing in the forest, and it's going back to this building. A church, a government, who knows what this building is. It's a destination. And at the top, at the very top of these wintry pine trees are these steps, these wooden steps. And at first glance, you would say, well, that's a stairway to heaven. In fact, it's a stairway to Kiefer's studio. At the time, he had a studio in Germany in an old schoolhouse, and his studio was in the attic of the old schoolhouse. And to get to his studio, he had to go up these wooden steps. So that doorway at the very top is where you open to go into Kiefer's studio. And this is the interior of the attic studio and a painting called Quaternity. And it's in this studio that Kiefer reenacts various events in history. It's a kind of fantasy, but it's a political, theological, spiritual fantasy that he's working out. The term Quaternity refers to a, 
a philosophical concept in the fourth century in which um, the discussion basically went, um, if God is all-powerful, how do you explain the existence of the devil? Why doesn't he just destroy the devil and make everything pure and perfect? And the quaternitarian said, well, it's simple because, oh, and I should mention that these three fires are labeled the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And then the snake is labeled as Satan. And what, and what Kiefer is referring to is that it is not a trinity, it's a quaternity. That evil is a part of the matrix of our universe. That it exists, you can't deny it, you simply have to deal with it. Now, these were very, very controversial paintings. In some ways, even more controversial than the Occupation series because they were more subtle. It was interpreted that the snake was Hitler. And the attic, which you could say is the heaven of of Kiefer's building where he lived, the attic is also a place where you hide secrets. You store things in your attic that you don't want to talk about. From from his studio, after doing these series of so-called attic paintings, Kiefer begins to move out of the studio in his mind and and in terms of the content of his work. Um, not imagining it in his studio, but actually referring to places that he has seen, landscapes in Germany that are tension-filled, shall we say, from history. This is a series of books that you'll see in the exhibition that are charred, and they're called The Cauterization of the Rural District of Buchen. And they began because Kiefer was doing this series of paintings after the attic paintings that he was very unhappy with. So he tore them up and he burned them. And you notice that fire is a thematic element that goes through Kiefer's work. He didn't know what was going to happen. He didn't know that he would make these books, but he burned these canvases. And he saw something that he identified with in these burnt canvases. And he made a whole series of seven books in which they're made of burnt thick tar. And they refer to a number of things that open up in Kiefer's work around the mid to late 70s. Um, One is that his studio was in Buchen. And Buchen was a site of a famous military installation where they made benzene. And benzene is like gasoline for tanks. And when the Allied forces came into Germany, the Germans in Buchen buried the benzene underground in large canisters and left them there. So when Kiefer had his studio in the 70s in Buchen, it was sitting over a pool of benzene that could explode. And so he's referring to that. Um, Buchen also means book in German. But there's also another reference. There's many more references, actually. Another reference is that Kiefer became very interested, and this was partially through Joseph Boys, in alchemy. And in alchemy, I'm sure you know that there is this idea that you can take a base metal like lead and transform it to gold. But to do that, you have to burn it to an ultimate blackened state. I mean, it's the ultimate black of blacks, and it's called negredo. And, of course, alchemy in its time was considered both a science and a religion, the idea that this transformation from base metal to gold was a metaphor for a transformation from earth to heaven, from earth to perfection. But there's also the aspect that he called it the cauterization of the rural district of Buchan. And if you look, look up cauterization in the dictionary, it's a healing of a wound. So Kiefer begins to... Kiefer's always been fascinated by flight, um, and I remember not long after he made this painting, I went to one of his openings in um, uh, Cologne. And um, he wanted me to come to his studio. And, and I, I was staying in Cologne, but his studio was in Buc. And he, I said, I can't, really, I, don't wanna, I can't drive that far. He said, it's no problem. I have a helicopter. I've rented a helicopter. And, and um, 
and he told me, and, and I'm learning to fly the helicopter, and I'm with this guy, and would you know, would you like to come with me to my studio and fly in the helicopter? And I said, absolutely not. <laughs> I'm not at all interested in flying with you in a helicopter from Cologne to Buchen. So I didn't go. But it, 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 it's all these years come back to me that when he asked that, that you know, he, fl- he likes to fly over these, these burnt German landscapes. And he imagines what those landscapes were directly after the war. This is a painting called uh, The Milky Way. And it's this landscape. It could be a German wintry landscape or a war-torn landscape. And in the center is this huge cut in which this milky substance is coming out. So he's referring to a celestial event, which is the Milky Way. But going into the cut is this large uh, uh, lead funnel. And, and lead is the base metal, one of the, one of the most important base metals in alchemy. And a funnel is a very important device in alchemy. Things are funneled into it. But it's also a little like a, a megaphone to God. It's from the earth up up to the heavens. And you see these tendrils, I guess I'll call them, that come out from the, from the cone, and they're like angel's wings. Not that Kiefer, I mean, Kiefer would say that after some glasses of wine, but he wouldn't admit to that. Um, and then he moves to other sites that are even more volatile, and this is a painting called Jerusalem. Now, to even call something Jerusalem is, is to incite everybody's thinking. I mean, Jerusalem is a holy site for Christians, for Jews, and for Islam. I mean, it is like, it's, it's so dense with history, so dense with meaning, so dense with contradiction, that it's like a, a stone that cannot be penetrated. And Kiefer puts these skis on this painting as though they could glide to heaven. But the skis are made of steel. They just sink into the lead. There's splashed lead all over this painting. It's one of the most beautiful paintings in the exhibition. And it's this idea that you're not going anywhere. Then Kiefer, besides landscape, Kiefer likes to take architectural sites. I mean, clearly that um, his studio in Buchen, the attic, was an an initiation to his idea of an architectural site that could be used in his art. This is a, um, a building by Carl Schenkel, who is a precursor uh, to Albert Speer, a 19th century precursor to Albert Speer, and who made this Gothic church structure. And the Gothic church was like a forecourt to heaven. I mean, that's what all churches are at the end of the day. They're preparing you for heaven. They're placing you in a a position that is not on the street, not in a pedestrian situation, in a special place. And then, of course, Kiefer remained interested in Albert Speer. And this is not a Kiefer painting. This is a photograph of an Albert Speer building, like the Councilry uh, of the Third Reich. And Kiefer understood what... Uh, Speer was trying to do. He was actually trying to make something uplifting and spiritual, but he was he was doing it for the wrong cause. Again, like Carl Schmidt, you know, just the wrong guy. As Kiefer likes to say, I'm interested in these people that are caught between the seduction, the seduction of politics and the seduction of God. And so then you see this beautiful watercolor by Anselm Kiefer in which he kind of combines architectural elements. And this could be a a Speer interior. And in in this Speer interior, you see this uh, 19th century artist palette on a stick. And it's beaming these lights up. And it's as though that this palette could transform this building. It could make it, 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 um, it, it, the title of the work is To the Unknown Painter. So Speer and the architects of, of all armies, of all militaries, make these tombs to the unknown painters, make these buildings, or tomb to the unknown soldiers, I'm sorry. And this is a play on the idea of tombs to the unknown soldiers. And yet this is a tomb to the unknown artist. And there is the palette. Um, which looks like it could transform this building. But then again, as is always with Kiefer, there's a dark side. And 
he's referring the fact that the pallet is on a stick. The Romans uh, used, when they defeated their enemies, would decapitate them and put their head on a stick on the roads so that the forces who were coming behind them would see that we've defeated these people. We've killed them, and, and here they stand. Here is their head. Um, but there's another subtext here that's even more important, and that is that I'm sure many of you know that before Hitler was a politician, his desire was to be an artist. And he was, he was declined admission to the Vienna Art Academy. And in Mein Kampf, he writes about it being one of the most disappointing aspects of his life, not being allowed into art school in Vienna. And it's, can you imagine if they just let him into art school? <laughs> it's astounding. So the palette is another symbol. There are many sort of recurring symbols in Kiefer's work. The, the palette is one of the strong recurring symbols. Here you see this palette hanging from a tree. And you see at the top it says heaven. At the bottom it says earth. And in the middle it says painter. And so the painter, in, in Kiefer's world, Kiefer is not nostalgic about the painter. He's not a romanticist who believes that the painter can completely transform the world. He puts the painter in purgatory, right in the center, just like he does our, our eye view when we look at his landscapes. We're floating somewhere between heaven and earth. And if you had ever ch had a chance to go to Kiefer's studio outside of Buchen, he had a studio in Buchen, and he purchased a brick factory. And he transformed the brick factory into this giant sculpture. And here you see these railroad tracks that go into this area where it, it's a 19th century brick factory where bricks were made. And there is a pit. Um, well, first I should explain, this is a, a lead pallet hanging from the ceiling of the brick factory, hanging between the top where he had a studio and between the earth where these earthen bricks were made. This is an early shot of the brick factory where you see this pit on the bottom is where mud was churned up and made uh, with straw, and then they made the bricks. And at the very back, you see these little doors. Those are ovens to burn the bricks. And needless to say, ovens are an incendiary symbol for Germans. And Kiefer, at the time I visited, had coming out of the ovens were these giant... Um, dried sunflowers, sort of like a memory of something that had dried up and died. And this became a work of art. This actually, this, this brick factory was purchased by a German collector uh, and is maintained as it was when Kiefer was in his studio. He's now in France. This is a, 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 a book, a very important book that Kiefer made that is in the exhibition called Merkawa, and Merkawa is the, uh, is the uh, it, it's the chariot that takes you through the seven heavenly palaces in Jewish mysticism. Um, you're carried through. This is the photograph of one of the floors in the brick factory where heat was allowed to escape. And Kiefer has painted in these ghosts or ashes that kind of flow up to the sky. This is a painting um, called Aschenblume, or Ash Flower. And here you see one of Albert Speer's buildings, almost identical to the chancellery. And Kiefer has covered it with ash. And then he has hung this huge sunflower. And in the exhibition, this is a real sunflower, a conservation nightmare, but a real <laughs> sunflower, which our museum purchased some years ago. And... Um, it's the sunflower is turned upside down. And it's the idea that, that well, there are many ideas in, in Kiefer's mind about it, that, that ash is something that actually, that this building could turn to ash over time and be regenerated and new living things could be made out of this mud that is at the bottom of the painting. But it's also the idea of burning again. It's like a negrito. We need to burn these things to... to, to 
um, purify. The book is clearly an important symbol to Kiefer. And this is a very important painting that is here in the collection of the Hirschhorn, simply called Das Buch. And the book, for Kiefer, as someone who studied law, you know, the book was very important. There was the book of law, there was the Bible, there was books of learning. But what, what is the book? Which book? How many books? Where will they take us? And he's placed this book on this cracked landscape at the edge of the sea. And water, as you'll see in the exhibition, is also an important symbol for Kiefer because it's an essential part of life, but it's also formless and chaotic. It's a terrestrial version of the cosmos. It's the closest thing we have to the cosmos on Earth is water. This is a, a print by the most famous German Renaissance artist, Albrecht Dürer. And every, every German artist, I'm assuming, I mean, I hope, every German artist is aware of Albrecht Dürer's work. Uh, and Albrecht Dürer makes the Da Vinci Code look like child's play. This is a very, very complex artist who has many, many symbols embedded. And here you see... Um, uh, a, a, a print of a, of a famous scholar, intellectual, not priest, but a spiritual person named Erasmus. And Erasmus is seen here with flowers that are living and alive, a very big book at the bottom, and there's a lectern there. And Erasmus was someone who was taken in by a monastery as a young child. This can't be coincidence that Kiefer is conflating these things about books and monasteries. And I mean, he's, he's pulling it all together. He would have known, he, he knew Erasmus' work from his father, uh, uh, Durer's work from his father. So this stuff goes very, very deep with Kiefer, and these symbols fly in. And then you have a work like this called Book with Wings, which is the idea of knowledge, that knowledge is could take us away, could, could transport us to heaven or some place that is higher, that is above the earth, that is a, a more spiritual or intellectual plane. But it's really an Icarus image. It's made of lead. Lead wings can't fly. This thing weighs a ton, and we had to use a forklift to install it. And these are eagle's wings. And the eagle is the national symbol of Germany. And it's made of lead. And lead, lead is a very, very important substance for Kiefer. Um, and this is a, uh, a bookshelf made of lead books. And lead, as I said, it's, it's a base metal in alchemy that can be used to transform something to gold. Lead is also associated with the planet Saturn. And the planet Saturn is the planet that is associated with artists and melancholy. And if you've seen this show, you know that there's a little melancholy going on in there. This is a, a large three-dimensional book. I mean, it's six, seven feet high. It's, it's also made of lead, and it has these uh, designations in it, these numbers. And the numbers can be interpreted in various ways. And then he has lines going from the different numbers. The numbers are actually NASA designations for stars. And uh, NASA has been cataloging stars since the beginning of the telescope. And they're more accurate now, and, and, and the number indicates the, the, the brightness of the star, the distance from the, from the Earth, and the color of the light. And they just keep cataloging them. And Kiefer's fascinated by the fact that they do it, and of course by the futility of it. They keep trying to imagine the universe, and they just come up with this list of numbers. But the numbers could also be a list of, of um, Holocaust victims who had numbers printed on their arms. And you also see that they're, they're, they're little poppies, little bloody wounds, um, they could be flowers that are trying to grow in this universe, or they could be um, 
referring to a, another very esoteric uh, philosopher named Robert Flood, who Kiefer's interested in. And Flood said, for every star, for every flower on the planet, there's a star in the sky. So now I am just going, this last part of the lecture won't be very long. I'm just going to take you through a little bit to explain to you that the show you're seeing, it, it has amazingly big paintings and it, it, it's, it's very grandiose. It's a mere fragment of what this insane man is doing in the south of France. I can tell you that. Um, he, his place is filled with lead and forklifts. This is a painting that is 36 feet high. And this, this is a tongue of lead with the sky coming down into this spear interior, just dipping down into it, like this melancholy event. This is a, this is a, a print by, Albert, by um, Albrecht Dürer again called Melancholia. Very famous print, probably his most famous print. And you see this angel with wings, despondent, just can't come up with a thought, can't come up with an idea of how to get to the next place. And then at the side you see this, is it a tetrahedron? This strange abstract shape. And Kiefer, in a painting called Melancholia that is in the exhibition, has the same tetrahedron. But there is this lead cloud coming from the sky. And you'll see in Kiefer's work there is always this this stuff trying to go up to earth and this residue falling down from the sky. Uh, at Kiefer's studio in Barjak, which is about uh, an hour and a half from Nîmes or, say, three and a half hours from the airport in Marseille, uh, in the foothills, it's not like the south of France, it's not, it's not like uh, the beach. This is uh, a very simple area. There is no town in Kiefer's town. It's just, it's just his place. And the road up is just lined with lead, these stacks of lead. And much of it is lead that Kiefer purchased from Cologne Cathedral. Uh, after the, uh, the war, the, the, the cathedral was damaged, and the roof had to be completely redone. And Kiefer bought, and it was stored somewhere, and Kiefer bought the lead from the roof of Cologne Cathedral. And this is Kiefer's new home studio, and it's a 19th century silk factory. And it consists of six giant buildings. Uh, uh, one of them is, is used for living, and it's, uh, Kiefer lives in a very Spartan kind of situation. And, and, and the studios are huge. And it's a place where he's doing the brick factory times three. And um, I... I when I talk about Kiefer, I always throw in new slides. And, and it dawned on me recently that, you know, he's building a kind of primitive church. He would never, ever admit that. But, and not far from where Kiefer uh, lives is uh, Matisse's famous chapel in Vence. And it's all about light, and it's all very uplifting. And there are other churches that artists have done. The Rothko Chapel in Houston sort of the flip side of all of that light and uh, uplifting character. But Kiefer is completely out of it. This is, you, in Kiefer's studio, you go into a hole. This is, he's digging miles of tunnels with earth-moving equipment and using these giant uh, uh, freight containers. And you go downstairs and you walk through these tunnels, and then, let me see how I can show this. Well, this is Kiefer's storage area. This is where he keeps all of his things. He keeps extra pieces of lead. He keeps human teeth. He keeps, I mean, it's just this huge library of objects that are his symbols. This is an underground area made of buildings made of those shipping containers that you see on railroads. And he uses them, and he covers them in dirt and concrete, and then he makes installations inside of each one. Now, these are things that he cannot sell. 
This is a photograph I took of Kiefer. He doesn't like to be photographed, but he didn't know he was being photographed here. This is Kiefer walking through one of the underground tunnels. It's, it's scary in there. If you're, if, you're, if you're slightly claustrophobic, which I am, you get about a quarter of a mile in. And you have to remember, there, you know, there, are, no peop- there are no architects doing this. <laughs> this is Kiefer, an artist, just making it up. This is a little like the helicopter flight. <laughs> so you go down one of those long hallways and you turn to your left and you see a room. And it's empty, possibly with some water on the floor and this emanation of lead coming down from outside. And Kiefer has often said to me, you know, Michael, under every one of my paintings is a Jackson Pollock painting. And he likes to splash the lead the way Pollock splashed, splashed paint. But it goes much deeper than that. That's the, that's the superficial version of the lead. The real version... On the left is Anselm Kiefer, um, and it's a lead emanation. On the right is another Albrecht Dürer work, and it's a watercolor. And Albrecht Dürer had a dream about the end of the world, and there was this dark emanation coming from the sky. There were things moving up to the sky and these emanations coming down from the sky. And I know Kiefer is aware of this work. And then he's trying to go to heaven, with these towers. These are 56 foot, 60 foot, 70 foot towers made of concrete, which he stacks up using all of this, uh, all of these cranes. I'll just run through some of these to show you how they're made. He builds these things. And the last time I was there, we were talking and he's joking around. He goes, you know, Michael, they fall down. And they do. Some of them have fallen down, and he, he likes that. He likes it when they fall down. He knows he can't sell these things. They just, he says, you know, you go to heaven, and then you fall down. These are huge. So he keeps going, trying to go to heaven in these little concrete heavenly palaces. This is looking up through one of them which you, again, shouldn't even get in there. <laughs> There's no one in, in this town, or there is no town in this town. There's no one who's doing coding or anything who say this could stand up. <laughs> he does these gouaches. He, he, he pours these concrete stairs. And the stairs are so long that they break under their own weight. Remember the stairs at La Tourette? And then off on the horizon at one end of his land, you see these stairs. So thank you very much for coming. And I'm... Anybody has any questions? Maybe 10 minutes? I'm sure. Yes? Yes. He has a, a, a wife, Renata, and two very young children. He actually has two families. So this is his second wife and his second family. I don't know how much time they see of him. Yes? I have a question about the uniforms you and How come are those available in Oh, anybody can get those. Oh, yeah. Check eBay. I'm serious. All of that stuff is available. I mean, I don't know how hard it was to get then. Probably pretty easy. I mean, in the sense that who would want them? Yeah. Um, You talked a bit about religion, but what was his original... Good point. That's a very good point. And in the interview I do in the catalog, it was astounding to me. When I first saw Kiefer's work, I assumed he was Jewish because there were so many references to Jewish mysticism. And so in this interview, I just started out by saying, by the way, what, what religion were you raised with? And he said, Catholic. Went to church every Sunday. 
So there's a, and a cat, and I'm, I don't want to go into it, but a Catholic in Germany is, you know, this is a reform country, you know. I mean, he was, I mean, Catholics were not on the top of the list in Germany. They, again, they were in purgatory. <laughs> they were the purgatorial sect. Um, He was with a Catholic cardinal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they hung out together a little bit. Really? Well, you know, um, I'm sure you've seen other politicians in this country and elsewhere uh, hanging out. You know, uh, I'm from Texas. <laughs> it, would have been, it would have been a Baptist. Not a Catholic cardinal. It is, it is if you don't know how to use it. And Kiefer's used it since the early 70s. And he's very careful about how to use it. He's very careful about what he does to it. He seals it. He does some things to it that make it not poisonous. But if you ate it, it would be extremely poisonous. And if you just... But over the years, I mean, he's actually... He eats organic stuff. It's... So he's very, very extremely. Well, okay, one more. Yeah. Are there any plans to open up his, his property at all? Well, uh, not now, but someday he's, he's purchased a gigantic hotel in Paris because Renata doesn't want to live in Barjack anymore, and I don't blame her. Um, and he has a studio there, which is immense in this new hotel. It's a huge building which he will renovate and, and do things to. And he will keep Barjack and keep work. It's like a gigantic sandlot for him. He really is slightly nuts. I mean, he's just like a kid in a sandlot doing these things, which is what artists do. It's just we're not used to seeing them do it on this scale. Um, but eventually, when he gets old, he won't be able to do Barjack anymore, and it probably will be. He was actually given the land by the French government, and my guess is it will revert to the French government, and they will keep it up. I like to refer to it affectionately as Kieferland. Thank you very much.